Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was one of those late nights on the job. But that didn't bother me at all. In fact, it was one of my favorite parts of being a park ranger. Hanging around late at night, with just a few of my fellow rangers in the middle of the woods, it was just like huddling around a campfire while you told stories. Except we were indoors around a fireplace. It was the middle of spring, but it had been cold lately, so while the afternoons were pleasant, the nights had been chilly. Which was why we were all inside gathered around a fire while on the clock. The ranger station was beyond comfortable with a fire, so I was contently sitting in one of the many leather couches facing it. We were all midway through a shift, and like many nights on the job, it was quiet, so we got to talking about nothing in particular. There's nothing like the natural flow of an unplanned conversation. Outside, the evening had slowly given way to night, and the darkness had settled upon the woods with its usual silent thoroughness. The area may be a park during the day, 
but at night, it was the woods. Parks inherently sound fun and brings to mind cookouts, whereas the woods has an inherently spooky vibe. There were four of us sitting by the fire in the ranger station on that chilly night. Me, Harland, Anthony, and Craig. Craig had just finished talking about his cousin's wedding when Anthony asked Harlan what his scariest story was from working here all these years. Usually, Harlan just chuckled and said he'd heard some crazy things over the years. But not this time. This time, he sat there quietly for a moment before he said, The Witch of Blackthorn Creek. That was when we all went completely still. If we were just like people huddled around a campfire, Harlan was the one in charge of building the fire. He was the ranger we always deferred to. He'd been on the job long enough to have earned that right. Harlan's family had also been in the area for generations, so if anyone had any stories to tell about what may have happened here, it was him. Plus he was a terrific guy. Hardworking and beyond helpful when you needed something. So when someone like Harlan tells you he's heard of a story like that, you listen. Intently. Especially with the tone of voice he used. Serious and no nonsense, without a trace of amusement. The Witch of Blackthorn Creek. Harlan began in a clear voice as we all gave him our full attention. The story was first told to me by my uncle George, who had been a lumberjack for years. According to him, people said there was a curse on the land, which was placed there by a witch. It all started one year, when the harvest went bad. Since there had been nothing but plentiful harvests every year, it made people beyond suspicious. There was barely enough grain and stuff to get through winter. It didn't help matters that the town had generally been prosperous but had recently started to go through some financial difficulties. Then, numerous bits of misfortune happened within the community over the years. Houses burning down. People going missing and never being found again. Periodically, there would be something odd left lying around near where someone had vanished. Creepy things like weird-looking dolls made from wood that never failed to rattle people. There wasn't anyone around who people thought was capable of anything like this, and since one of the families in town had experienced something like this before in a different town many years ago, they suspected there was some kind of curse put on them. Especially after a few people who kept track of all the strange events realized all of them took place on a full moon. Harlan took a sip of his coffee before he continued. It all came to a head when there was a terrible accident at the town lumber mill. A fire that no one could figure out how it started. Several employees died and many others were badly injured, and the lumber mill, which was one of the biggest employers around, closed. That was when the paranoia that had been lingering under the surface boiled over. So when some people from town found an abandoned cottage in the woods near Blackthorn Creek with weird symbols written on the walls and the floor, they grabbed their torches, set the place on fire, and watched it burn. According to the crowd, the cabin took forever to burn. Much longer than the people thought possible. But once it did finally burn down, they took the ashes and buried them deep in the woods and didn't mark the location, hoping that would be the end of it. And, for a while, that seemed to be the case. But every once in a while, something would happen that would make people in town look over their shoulders. Nothing major. A bit of bad luck in the form of an injury. Or some suspicious noises outside the house after dark and perhaps some scratch marks on the door or the wall. But ever since then, people would be very careful what they did, especially if there was a full moon. Then he paused for a moment to look at the fire, which was crackling pleasantly in the fireplace. I couldn't tell you how old I was when I first heard the story, but I remember exactly how I felt. Confused. Because the story, although creepy and entertaining, didn't quite make sense to me. And I said something to Uncle George about that. And he laughed. 
Then he said he agreed that the story was long on atmosphere and short on believability. That's when he got serious. Told me that although the story was a bit of fiction, he never doubted that it came from somewhere, and there was indeed something going on out in the woods. Then he added that it didn't matter how old I was, where I was, who I was with, or what was going on. If I got a terrible feeling, I should listen to it. And I've listened to every feeling I've gotten since then. It's never served me wrong. He looked around at us, slowly taking us all in. I've never quite believed that story, but I will be the last person to deny that in all the years I've been out here, I've felt things on occasion. Things that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And on even fewer occasions, I've seen things. Fleeting glances at things that I wasn't sure I saw. But there was one time when I not only felt something, I heard something. The air in the ranger station was completely still. I briefly glanced at my colleagues as Harlan said this, and they met my glance, and I could see they were just as gripped by the story as I was. It was about 30 years ago, Harland explained. I was just starting out as a park ranger. This was back in the early 90s when technology, and life in general, was very different from today. I'd grown up out in nature, and I'd seen plenty of scary movies, and more importantly, I'd grown up hearing countless spooky stories about what may or may not have been lurking outside, so I wasn't exactly sheltered. But there are some things you're never truly prepared to experience. The fire in the fireplace popped in the grate, but we were so absorbed in Harlan's story we barely noticed. There was plenty of wood in the fire, so we didn't have to worry about that for a while. It was early November. Halloween had just ended, which made everyone sad because I remember that year was a particularly fun one. Darkness seemed to be arriving earlier and earlier, so I was barely halfway through my shift when the sun was going down. I remember it had been raining almost every day, so the days were all gray and cloudy, and the nights were damp with plenty of fog. But that particular morning was dry. All the leaves that had clung to the trees had been scattered by the winds and rain, so they lay there on the grass, all damp and torn. My job on that particular day was to go around raking them up so they didn't completely cover the trails and paths that people walked on. The chill in the air was that chill only late fall can bring. The dampness that seems to soak into your skin and never let go. I had just finished one section of the park and was walking back to my truck when the rain started up again and it did so with a fury. So I hustled it to the truck, got inside, and headed back to the ranger station where I planned to spend the rest of the evening. And since it was a quiet night at the ranger station, it looked like I would get what I wanted. I was used to working the late shift by myself as the night supervisor, so being alone didn't bother me. I'd always been a quiet type who liked to read a book, so it was an ideal situation for me. Except for that night. Harlan took a deep breath before he continued. Because Halloween was over and the rain had been steady, the park hadn't received as many visitors as it usually had. But I was inside the ranger station, this ranger station in fact, which was just as cozy and warm as you see it now. Plus now that I was done with my task, I was free to read a book, so I wasted no time in curling up by the fire with a paperback. I'd spent many a shift this way, and it was fine by me. I'd happily read a book on a nice day, but on a rainy day? Nothing better. Eventually, I started to get hungry. Since I'd just brought a light snack but turned out to be craving something bigger, I decided to order pizza. There was a local joint that was only a few minutes away that often delivered out here back then, so I didn't hesitate to give them a call. I ordered a medium pizza with pepperoni, and as I hung up, the rain started to really pound heavily on the station roof. I knew from experience that the rain pounding on the station roof could truly be loud. It seemed to surround you from all sides. 
But by the time the headlights pulled into the driveway, the rain had faded to a slight drizzle. But I could see the grass leading up here was pretty well soaked, and there were numerous small puddles on both the grass and the road. The trees were swaying along with the winds, and the sky was getting darker by the minute as night was settling in. By now, the outdoor lights had started to switch on as the car from the pizza place pulled up in front of the station, its windshield wipers going back and forth as it stopped in front of the entrance. I stood in front of it, under the part of the roof that kept me out of the rain. The driver, a young guy named Derek in his early 20s, got out of the driver's seat and grabbed the pizza from the passenger's side. Derek had delivered here before, and he'd always done a great job. We chit-chatted as I handed him the cash with a generous tip. Then Derek handed me the pizza and was just about to go back to his car before he stopped and stared at something behind me. He paused, and said that it would probably sound crazy, but it looked like there was a woman lurking in the woods near the ranger station. We all sat there silently for a moment before Harlan continued. I remember just standing there when he told me. The words sounded almost foreign as Derek said them out loud. My first reaction was that it was impossible. But there was only one way to find out, so I turned behind me to look at where he was pointing. He took another sip of coffee. The cluster of trees he was pointing at was a dense area of tall pine trees. They've been long gone by now. But back then, there wasn't much in the way of illumination out there, but even I could see there was nothing there. I stood there, the pizza still clutched in my hand, as I waited for anything to happen. But nothing emerged from the woods. I was just about to turn back to Derek when I heard get out from beside me in a hushed voice, clear as could be. I turned around immediately to look at Derek, and without saying a word, I knew he'd heard it too. But while it was creepy as could be, I didn't know for sure what it meant. It didn't come out as an ominous command. More like a warning. But I won't lie, standing there outside, I'd never felt fear like that before. I'd been afraid before, and I'd been afraid after, but not like that. That fear was less like a feeling and more like a part of your body. Like it's always there, and only rarely are you truly aware of it. Sitting there watching Harland, it was clear that although we were sitting there in the present, he had been immediately transported back to that cold November night. I couldn't have told you how much time passed. May have only been a minute or two. But despite the dwindling light, I thought I could see shapes moving far out in the woods. Very far out. After a moment, you couldn't see anything at all. Then Harlan's voice became quieter. To this day, I have no idea why that sight filled me with so much fear. Just like I also have no idea how I knew it was people. But I did. And I knew it was people, as in more than one. Much more than one. But I had no idea exactly how many. Then, almost as if on cue, I heard the word, now. And it was all the motivation I needed to tell Derek we had to go. He didn't need to be told twice because we hopped in his car and got out of there as fast as we could. Didn't stop for about 20 miles and we were far away from the ranger station. By that point the fear had slowly faded and I was starving, so we split the pizza while debating what to tell my superiors. I eventually decided to say that I was feeling really sick and went to see a doctor I knew. Harlan chuckled. But it didn't take long for me to realize my excuse for leaving would be completely forgotten. Because after I left, the ranger station had been broken into by a group of people. The security camera we had at the time saw all six of them, dressed from head to toe in black, break right through the front door. Just crashed right through it. Then, minutes later, they came back out without taking anything, and vanished into the trees. The cops thoroughly searched the area but found nothing. I found out when I called my superiors to tell them I had to leave because I was feeling horrible.
From the time on the camera, they appeared to arrive within mere minutes after I left with Derek. We all exchanged a look as the fact that he really was talking about this ranger station dawned on us. Sitting across from us, Harlan didn't say anything, but I knew he could tell the three of us were seeing the ranger station like never before. The conclusion the cops reached, Harland eventually said, is that it was a gang of professional criminals who saw the ranger station and decided to see what they could find. Since there was apparently nothing they could make use of, they split. And every year on that day since that happened, I've taken a single flower and left it by where Derek says he saw someone that night. I've never seen or heard that voice since that night, but on occasion, I've felt the presence of something or someone watching me, and not in an unpleasant way. But that's the thing about the woods. There's no telling what you may find in them. And if you're really paying attention, it's amazing what you can learn. Like I learned that November night, all those years ago, was a full moon. The clouds just happened to obscure it out here. When I was 15, we were camping just outside of Yosemite National Park. We fell asleep in an old car camping space near midnight. The forest started to come alive with that crackling sound, like a bullhorn. We woke up and looked around but saw nothing, so we tried to go back to sleep. The noise continued to get louder and closer until it was right outside our tent. It stopped for about 15 minutes before making the noise again, this time much softer and not as loud. But after being woken up again by a sound outside our tent, I was terrified out of my wits. I remember thinking, if this is Bigfoot, he's about to crash into our tent and rip us to pieces. About 20 minutes later, the noises were still going on, but now there was this awful scream that sounded like it came from a bear yet had the cadence of a human scream. It sounded as if it came from either behind or next to a tent, but there were no animals around that could have made the sound. I can't really describe it, if you heard it, you would know what I mean. After another 20 minutes or so of creeping around outside our tent, quietly rustling leaves and making growling noises like two bears mating or something, it slowly went away. We went back to sleep until morning. We somehow slept, I know, a miracle, right? Well, when morning came, my friend, who woke up before me, found some weird footprints by our car. They looked human, but they only had three toes in the prints, and his feet were humongous. They also appeared to be in twos, the same way you and I stand up. It was creepy. We went back to the ranger station and reported it. The guy told us in kind of a hushed tone that there's supposedly Bigfoot activity in the area, but it kind of gave us a wink like he didn't really believe what we had to say. And I think he kind of smirked and smiled again, totally thinking the whole thing was a joke. I don't think my friend believed this either. He didn't say a word for a week after that night, even though he's the one that showed me the prints. But every time I tried to talk about it, he would just shut down and say, yeah, that didn't happen. So maybe denial, I don't know. We later got to talking about it and opened up to a much more serious conversation. We both know something weird happened that night, but what came to visit us outside of our tent, I'm not sure. I haven't experienced what I have told many people about, and no one believes me except my family. This makes me think that they have had similar experiences themselves. They believe talking about these things welcomes them. My family had a ranch growing up in Northern California. It's been in our family since the early 1900s. It's surrounded by forests, about a hundred feet away from the house. Cowboys would pay to take a bath on their travels and sleep in the stable. There is still a sign up there for the baths. We converted that stable into a home after the original house my grandfather built burnt down in the 50s. 
It was very isolated my whole life. We would spend weekends up there, no phone, no cable, just electricity. If you got hurt or cut your hand on the wood splitter, tough luck. It's an hour to town. It was very basic necessities, a wood-burning stove, all the appliances, everything. Despite growing up there, we always carried guns, even to the bathroom that was connected to the house, but you had to go out the front door to get to it. It wasn't an outhouse, but kind of. As kids, we always had to be in groups of three or one kid and when adults. I had little things happen that terrified me, but I was always told not to acknowledge it. When I was 21, my grandfather was having a hard time staying there all weekend, and I loved it up there so much I moved in with my dog. He was a big stocky pit bull and went everywhere with me in my tiny red 1993 Miata. I loved that car. This was around 2009. My cell phone worked up there, but I had to set it on this specific shelf, and it was pretty inconsistent at times with texts, but I could always call out. Standing on a chair by the shelf, I had a boyfriend who was a jerk. He came up every day, but he never slept over. It was scary up there. I would watch movies and listen to the radio. Not having cable even added to the isolation. So one day, it's super windy, but the power by some miracle was staying on. There was one light above the barn that barely reached my house. It had two front doors, one in the kitchen and one in my room on the same side of the house, about 15 to 20 feet apart. My dog starts going crazy. I assume it's because of the wind or a mountain lion. I wasn't about to let him out. The screen is kind of rattling with everything else, and then I hear it right outside my door. I swear, my son, I heard a tiny voice say, hello, with another pause, hello, pause, hello. It sounded like a very small person, but not a child. No knocking, no response to anything I said, just the same word over and over, but like they were trying to get it right. The voice sounded like ours. I was so petrified, and my dog's freaking out, his hair up. I'm calling my boyfriend, crying, and he is on the way, but it's like an hour to get here, and everyone loses service on the way up. I called my grandfather, and he was so mad, saying, grab the gun and do not open the door by any means. I was crying and begging for it to answer. I asked if it needed help, doesn't want my phone. I was so scared that it would only say hello. Everything felt so wrong. I did not try and peek out the window. It was older glass, the kind that looks even if that makes sense, it's very easily broken. My boyfriend arrived first, then my uncle. Before they got there, it became less and less, and then nothing. There's no way a person was wandering out there. The way to my stoop was all mud. The stable is kind of on a small cliff, so walking to the stoop where the stairs are is uphill from the house. No footprints, animal or human, are in the mud. Nothing touched or taken, not even from the fridge that was outside near the bathroom area. I moved back to town not long after that. I never slept there again. The way my uncle acted when he got there was like he knew there was nothing to be found and hidden. He didn't ask me many questions at all. He told me to keep my dog on a leash, and that was it. No one talked about it the next day except me. I know there are amazing. Not sure if creepy, or just scary. Group of us, maybe 10 people, 3 couples in tents, and 3 to 4 others in their single tents, spread out over 4 campsites. No one else in camp, early April. We all lived within a few hours of the National Forest Campground, and met about once a month or so for a weekend, to camp, hike, mountain bike, etc. Nearly all the men snore, and loudly, 
and one of the females too. We turned in after a fire, s'mores, etc. around 11 p.m. Everyone else was asleep and snoring, keeping me awake. I laid in the tent trying to sleep for quite a while, last looked at time at 1 a.m. Then I heard very heavy footsteps coming from the about halfway around the campground. Gravel road in camp, so obvious it was footsteps, deliberate with no hesitation, walked through the campground and came directly to our tent. Our tent was pretty big, had vented windows on two sides, and we had a queen-size double-thick air mattress, heads at the vented windows. The walker walked around to the back of our tent, kneeled at vented window, and exhaled loudly and forcefully, got up and walked into the woods behind our tent. I heard it walk up the steep hillside without stopping. Not one person with me woke up, I couldn't wake my husband or the couple at the closet tent. I was so frightened but I eventually fell asleep. Next morning, outside our tent near the window on a little stumpy bush was a deer antler with flesh still hanging from it. We had a recording device and there was a weird chatter between two beings talking that sounded like gobbledygook, like a made-up language but definitely something's talking. We listened to the recording to hear the footsteps, and later the talk started about 4 am and lasted about 2 minutes. No one in the campground but us, never even had a car drive through the whole weekend and we were at least 7 to 8 miles from next campground. Not related but my friend had a very creepy camping experience in Hawaii. He pulled up to this state park that looked abandoned and thought cool, he'd have the entire place to himself, so he drove in, set up his tent, made some coffee. I don't know why but it was dark already and he decided to stand on the edge of the cliff and sip his coffee. He felt a strange strong feeling of being watched so he pulled out his flashlight and looked around but no one was there. Then he felt like two small hands on the small of his back trying to push him off and lost his balance. He moved away a few inches from the edge and felt it again. Don't know why but he decided to stay the night there anyway. In the morning he packed up his stuff and went down the coast where he met some local surfers. He told them where he slept and they all looked at him weird and said dude, that place is haunted. A few years later when he told me the story we googled the state park and turns out there were like 3 or 4 murders there and people have different strange experiences there especially during dusk or night time. My sister and I were camping at a poplar and very large dispersed camping area in the Rockies. It was just me, her and two dogs for the night, our boyfriends were coming up the next day. These two guys approached us as we were getting out of the car to unload and set up. They stated asking if we wanted a party with them. Both dogs immediately went batshit. Mine was a blue healer, and his hackles went way up, which was not common for him. The other was a Norwegian elkhound that was also very protective in general. Those dudes booked it out of there so fast. We kept seeing them walk by our sight behind our car, but man, those dogs were so alert the whole time. There's no bathrooms up there, so they weren't going back and forth for that. The vibe they gave off was very predatory from the start. After our boyfriends showed up later the next evening, we didn't see them walk by again. I've been camping a long time and only had one weird experience like that, although not as personal as yours. It was two years ago at the walk-in tent sites at Seneca Shadows Campground in Seneca Rocks, West Virginia. I met one of my camp neighbors, who was a tradesman that did construction, and he was there for climbing. He was a nice enough guy, but there was something a little off about him. Well, that night, a little after midnight, this guy starts screaming out in his sleep. I don't know if he had night terrors or what, but it went on every 20 to 30 minutes, 
just screaming out in a rage. It was driving me nuts and he had to be keeping half the campground awake. The dude was sleeping in a covered hammock, and as tempted as I was to go over there and wake him up, I had no idea if he had any kind of weapon on him. He kept it up all night and I finally packed up and moved on around 6 am. As a solo camper at times, and as a full-time RV for a bit, and as someone who works alone outdoors in South Florida in wild places and in areas where homeless or addicts set up at times, for work, I often am physically boxed into a spot doing my work on foot and can't run to escape, or make enough noise. But I cover all my bases I always have my 38 on me. In a sticky holster in my Sprouts bra. I have my machete for work on me. I have pepper spray on a lanyard having on my right side. I have a knife on a lanyard on my left side. I have a scream alarm I can yank attached to me. For camping, I do all the normal stuff. Pair of extra worn men's shoes, extra chair, keep everything except what I am using in the vehicle or backpack in order to get the F out fast, keep each emergency item within inches on both sides of me, put up a tripwire, have a red light headlamp that I will usually sleep with on, you can see at night with red better and don't lose night vision. Keep a very easy to grab and point very bright gator hunting light right next to me because I'm going to blind the F out of them even if my only choice is to literally jump up and run into the woods, slip on shoes, my dash cam pointing at me or a wireless one doing to the so if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, there might end up being a record. And what I have at all times without fail is a Garmin inReach device. For work and for camping and hiking and traveling. It tracks and communicates via satellite. Someone always knows my location and plan and timeline. Even for work. I have gotten heat exhaustion in a wetland and not been able to get out and had to be found and helped by a co-worker. I stepped on a very large rattlesnake and it didn't strike. I fell in a waist-high wetland and my chest waders filled up. I have gotten fully lost in the woods doing work. I have come down a trail during work and found a whole tent city and still had to keep working. Junkies eye my gear for theft. I have had a creepy F knock on my camper. I have had my, deceased, wolf dog go hog wild at someone looking at me, which she never did that bad despite her fierce protection of me. I have had a truck of two guys ask a question on a powerline road while I had two big dogs with me walking, then disappeared then came back for another question, while one said something I couldn't hear but seemed like come on man let's do it now, and both dogs hair was straight up. They drove down the rock road again and I hid in the woods until my boyfriend came back on his mount bike. We are vulnerable but we can do it. It sucks that we have to build Fort Knox around ourselves to be able to be alone out there. But the simple fact that nearly any man can kill near any woman with their bare hands makes that our reality. And the number of other things they can do that stops short of death are innumerable and just as evil and deadening. Be aware, take care, be strong and get outside. Me and a few friends were resting on the side of a trail. About 15 feet away a middle-aged man stops in the middle of the trail and is just staring at us smiling not breaking eye contact. I was thinking okay this is weird but whatever. Next thing I know he pulls a machete out and starts walking fast straight toward us still smiling and not breaking eye contact. He walks about 2 feet past me and I was about to shove this guy down the rocks on the side of the trail but he passed then chopped a small 1 feet tall bush for no reason. He never said a word then just continued down the trail after that. After, my friends and I talked and were all thinking about pushing this guy off the edge but glad we didn't. He is now known as Machete Man and maybe he thought it was funny but almost got himself seriously injured. I still don't know why he did that.
We pull into a state park campground to camp for a couple of nights. There was a line of trees separating our campsite from our neighbors, and our neighbors had a strap strung up between two of the trees with two blackened sausages hanging from hooks. Trying to ignore how weird that is, our neighbors greet us and say don't worry about the sausages, our buddy got a trail camera so we're trying to catch raccoons with it. Glossing over the fact that this trail cam is pointed right into our campsite. I definitely had to keep this in mind when I got out of my camper to pee in the middle of the night. The sausages were still there the next morning, but I think eventually a ranger came by and told them to cut it out because they disappeared sometime during the day. I didn't like the weird vibes emanating from that spot, so we just ignored their presence for the most part. They were gone for most of the day, but came back to their enormous RV and generator right as we were thinking it would be peacefully quiet for the rest of the evening. The last morning, I wake up to the sound of a thousand crows circling us. I lay there for a while and then peek out and see a dead crow lying right in the same precise spot below where those black sausages had been hanging the day before. Every crow within a 100 mile radius was circling overhead, angrily cawing out during this crow funeral. Now I've been on the wrong side of a crow war before, so I wasn't too interested in any of them recognizing me. We packed up our camp as quickly as we could and hit the road. Yes, once had a guy creeping in the woods behind our campsite. We were about eight people so we weren't really worried. Eventually we called him over. He came out and was this grizzled dude that literally looked like her lives in the woods alone. We told him if he got us some firewood he could hang out and drink and eat with us. No joke, dude came back 20 minutes later carrying enough wood for like a week's worth of fire. We hung out with the dude all night drinking and talking and then we turned around and he disappeared back into the woods. Huckleberry, we will never forget you. We never got his real name, that's just what we call him to this day. Right after I graduated HS, my aunt took my cousin and I cross country. One night we were staying at a campground near San Francisco. The tent we were in had a divider curtain, so I was on a separate side from my aunt and cousin. In the middle of the night I heard the tent unzip and someone, who I assumed was my aunt, came into my side and got under the covers next to me. It only partially woke me up, but something felt off and after a few minutes I looked down and noticed the person had huge boots on. It immediately became clear that this wasn't my aunt, so I got up and quickly went to the other side of the tent to wake her up. She promptly went over to wake him up and tell him that he was in the wrong tent, and he left without incident. Apparently he had a strong odor of alcohol which I hadn't noticed. A classic case of mistaken identity. I used to do contract remote fieldwork assignments and would camp in my truck bed to save all my per diem or lodging allowance. I traveled all around the US with no problems, except in Texas. I found a little lake that was pretty secluded with only one road in or out. I was the only one out there and thought I had found a great spot. I settled in, cooked dinner and went to bed. I've got a utility style shell that you can't see into but is completely built out on the inside. Usually. I like being stealthy with my truck camper, so no windows was good for privacy. Problem is that it looks like a work truck that probably has expensive gear inside. Anyway, at 3.30 am I woke up to a bunch of tweakers trying to break into my truck. I grabbed my headlamp and knife and jumped out and ran behind some bushes and was luckily not seen. I always sleep with my key in my pocket so I set the truck alarm off to see how many there were with the blinking lights, and hopefully scare them off. There ended up being like 10 of them and they had blocked the entryway with two vehicles, 
No other way out. They eventually got bored with my truck and started a fire nearby. I sat behind those bushes for two hours watching them do endless amounts of drugs and stagger around like zombies. They also would occasionally just shoot a pistol straight up in the air and yell nonsense gibberish. Eventually they passed out and I jumped in my truck and plowed through the brush to get around their vehicles. Drove straight to the nearest town and got a hotel room for two hours of sleep before heading out for work. My family was camping on North Padre Island. If you've never been there or heard of it, you're literally on the beach. Our camper was set up just off the beaten path that was being used as a road up and down the beach. It was incredibly remote. The roar of the ocean and the constant wind were both peaceful and deafening. Adding to the desolation was the fact that the nearest camper was more than a quarter mile away in one direction and out of sight on the other. Being in such an out-of-the-way destination also meant there was no cell service of any kind. On the afternoon of our second day on the beach, my husband and two oldest children had to go back to the mainland to get some supplies, leaving my youngest and me alone with no vehicle or means of communication. Things were lovely and easy going as we played in the surf and relaxed reading in front of the camper. Periodically trucks would drive past searching for a fishing spot. They moved down the beach often never to be seen again, likely because they had found their spot. At one point, a small red pickup passed us and the man driving waved. I returned the friendly gesture and went back to reading. Not long after, the truck returned to pass in the opposite direction, again with the driver waving. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My son continued playing in the surf and I kept reading my novel when suddenly the little red pickup was stopped between us. While I could still see my son, having the pickup between us made me uneasy. Then the driver rolled down his window and started asking questions. He was friendly but was getting fairly detailed in his queries. How long are you here? Where did you come from? Where are you headed? Who are you with? And so on. I gave inaccurate and vague answers but was afraid to tell him to get lost as I didn't want to escalate the situation with absolutely no means to contact anyone. He continued to chat me up for around 15 minutes until finally he headed back down the beach, to see if he could find a spot to bring back his kids later in the day. There is literally 20 plus miles of beach to camp on. Pretty sure there were plenty of spots. Glad to be rid of the nuisance, I tried to relax again, but something about the guy bothered me. Unfortunately, he and his little red pickup were back within a half an hour, stopping again. This time he rolled down his window and said, looks like you've got the best spot on the beach. Maybe the kids and I will be back and parked next to you. They can all play. I gave a nervous laugh and he left. I then promptly went into the camper, took our handgun out of its safe, checked to be sure the safety was on, and loaded it. I brought my son inside and locked the door. Now, maybe that guy was just friendly and I was just on edge. But I was not about to find out if my gut was right had that red pickup rolled up and stopped again. When my husband and older kids finally pulled up, I burst into tears. I go solo camping with my dog a Springer Spaniel, 
so he isn't the most intimidating dog. He's just a fluffy goof that loves people. We were at the Strait State Park, and I wanted to walk to the beach from our site to see the bridge lit up at night. I go down to the beach and we were on the sand, and I was getting ready to snap a picture. I just hear my dog snarling. He has never made a sound like that in his life, and turned to see what he is reacting to. There is a man with no reflective gear, lights or phone on him just standing in the water about up to his knees staring at me. He doesn't say anything, just is staring. My dog is snarling, and circling me as he is attached around my waist and I book it out of there. Go back to my site and get my gun and just hide in my pop-up. Slept very uneasy that night, texted my folks what the hell just happened as an FYI if they don't hear from me. Went back to the beach in the morning, no person there, but there wasn't anything in the water either, like if I mistook a log for a person or something like that. My boy Pappy hasn't reacted to anyone like that before, nor since then. He sometimes growls at people on the trail that spook me or weird me out, but has never made that visceral sound since then. I, 25 male, was camping solo at Primitive Wilderness Site along the Linville Gorge Ridge, North Carolina. Late afternoon-ish, a guy, age 30 or so, drove by, stopped, and parked at the entrance to my spot, about 40 feet from my car and site. It was 20 degrees Fahrenheit, I was the only other person on the ridge of about 15 or so open spots. Thought it was weird but whatever. He gets out of his car and just stands there, silent, looking the other direction for about 5 straight minutes. Never looked at me or moved. Just staring into the woods opposite of me. I was just casually sitting by my fire watching him like uh is this chill or am I about to get murdered. He finally turns around, and walks right up to me. We engage in casual quick introductions and I can see he's wanting to stay for a while. He seemed okay, but a little weird, nothing too alarming. After 10 minutes or so of convo he says he's up here from Florida to see some waterfalls, and asks where they are. I tell him the hike to check out and he still hangs out and keeps chatting. He's mostly making sense but occasional nuances in his sentences were throwing me off a little. Then, he starts telling me how much he hates the cops and how he needs to stay away from them. This was pretty weird, and although I was curious I didn't want to know why, and didn't ask. We moved on. To make an already long story a bit shorter, we talked about his interests in random religions, wishing he could stop smoking weed, and then, he brought up the time I lost my mind. That's how he referred to whatever that moment was. And he kept saying how bad it was, how we has regrets, and just consistently would say the words the time I lost my mind. I was pretty weirded out at this point, a bit scared to be honest, and thought it was best to just not ask, and to stay interested in his conversation, to ensure he doesn't start disliking me. He tries to get me to drink and smoke with him, I have to continue to refuse, claiming I stopped a few years ago. It's getting dark. I'm so nervous to ask him to leave but I really want to. I didn't know how he would respond. It was clear he was a bit off. I finally politely ask if he can leave so I can enjoy a solo experience as I was hoping for, he says sure sure of course man of course, he walks halfway to car, and says he's super tired, and that he's just going to sleep in his car where it's parked, blocking the entryway to my site. At this point I tell him to please go further down the mountain, I want to be entirely alone out here. He sat in his car for 20 minutes before finally leaving, at about 8 to 9 pm or so. That night I was pretty scared trying to fall asleep. He knew I was alone out there, where I was, and that no one was around for at least 30 plus miles. Did this guy have bad intentions? By the end of our convo I had such a weird vibe from this guy. 
I considered heading home but decided to stay. Thankfully woke up after flinching awake to every small noise I heard outside while trying to sleep. Never saw him again, this was last year, and honestly, it's a bummer because I used to love camping there. I've been 10 plus times, but I'm truthfully pretty nervous to go back. Hopefully we'll plan another trip back out there soon, which I'm sure will be wonderful, and without weirdos. Was driving through Alaska trying to get to Haines to take the ferry to Washington. Stopped at this small town bar to ask for directions to a place to spend the night. Everyone in the bar turned and looked at me like I was an alien from outer space. The older lady offered to give me lodging for free for a price, wink wink. I was a fit soldier that just left the military so I guess I was extremely attractive at the time. I knew from the safety briefings that STDs were prevalent in the area so I said, uh, hat's fine I'll find some place down the road, you're good. Thanks. Anyway I found this abandoned quarry, and set up my tent next to this vehicle that had bullet holes all over it, shotgun to hell. When I settled down into the sleeping bag, I heard these footsteps from above the half crater I was in. I took out my knife and placed it over my neck under the sleeping bag and tried to go to sleep, but my hypervigilance was activated too far and there was no way to see outside the tent. I had too much stuff in the car people would want, so I packed up the tent and drove down the road. I slept on the turnoff in the car overnight and woke up to a nice sunrise over the mountain range. Not a scary experience but an interesting one. I was camping on BLM land in Sedona, Arizona where there are tons of free campsites along a couple mile long road. It was fairly busy that evening so many of the sites were taken. I finally found an open spot with a fire pit, there was an old bucket and an empty water gallon next to the fire pit and I just assumed some asshole left their trash behind so I set my sight up. An hour or so later a couple in an RV or camper drove into the spot, got out and came over to talk to me. In this passive-aggressive way they proceeded to tell me that I was in their spot? And how did I not realize that someone had reserved this spot because of the bucket and empty water bottle that was left there? As nice as possible I tried to explain that the site appeared vacant to me and they were welcome to share the area with me. I think they were hoping I was going to pack my stuff up and leave because although they did end up staying and sharing the site, they had a loud-ass generator running all night and kept all of the flood lights around the camper on all night which made it basically feel like I was trying to sleep during the daytime with the lights shining right on my tent. I just couldn't understand why they thought they had the right to reserve a free first-come first-serve campsite in the first place but especially considering they basically did it with trash and also were staying in a camper and didn't really even need the campsite to begin with. I don't know somebody can tell me if they think I'm in the wrong here but I sure didn't think so. We were in a national forest dispersed camping but using a spot off the road that clearly many had camped at. Our truck was visible from the road but the campsite was down a little trail and not visible from the road. We happened to be putting dinner equipment or food back in the truck at the end of the night, after dark, when a truck approached on the road and stopped about 50 yards away. It sounded like two guys having an argument until we realized they were yelling at us, obscenities, etc. We figured let's close up the truck and go back into our sight so they couldn't see us and keep quiet. They turned off their headlights and slow rolled by our sight and stopped and then told us they were going to kill us and would come back for us in the middle of the night etc. Then they shot a gun, presumably straight up in the air but we couldn't see, and peeled out. Freaked us the HLL out. Probably just a couple local drunks entertaining themselves but why they were on that road, 
a random forest service road in a national forest, at that time and decided to do that I have no idea. We thought about packing up and leaving but figured there was no chance they'd come back. Wandering into someone else's campsite in the middle of the night when you don't know how many people are there or what they're like is a recipe for disaster, we didn't think they'd try that. We were unarmed, but they didn't know that. Fortunately it was four men but I think if it had been my wife and I we might have left. The crystal creeper is what I call him and it'll make sense later in the story. I like to go to this dispersed camping about an hour and a half from my place. I went up in the afternoon and set up camp while waiting for my cousin to arrive a few hours later. As I was sitting in a chair reading a truck pulled up about 50 feet from me blocking the entrance to the site. I could see a man in the driver's seat. He sat there for almost 20 minutes not getting out. Then he got out and went to the passenger side of the truck and took out a pickaxe. He walked directly over to me and said, I'm going to be going over that way to look for some crystals, while pointing with a pickaxe. I said, uh okay, and he walked off. I decided to go on a walk myself in the opposite direction. I was gone for over an hour. When I was walking back to the entrance of the site he was standing there. Just standing there looking at me. I had headphones in so I tried to pretend I didn't see him and intended on walking up the road a bit and crossing into my site that way. As I went by though he held out his hand and said, want to see the crystals? You can have one if you want I said no, thanks and decided on heading back the way I came. There was another site 100 yards away. Two guys and a teenager were drinking beer and having a good time. I definitely invaded their space, but gave them the lowdown on the crystal creeper and asked if I could hang with them until my cousin arrived. They were super nice and gave me a beer and we listened to music for an hour or so. My cousin drive by and picked me up and we headed back to the site. The guy's truck was still there and he was just sitting in it. He was there all night. Never set up a tent or even a chair. Maybe if I had accepted the crystal offer I could have been teleported to another dimension. So, over the last 7 months, I've been working for someone I responded to on Craigslist. Well, I'll just explain everything. This seems like an appropriate place to post this. I was scouring the internet for some sort of paying gig, I didn't really care what. Then I came across a post on Craigslist, I had just refreshed the page and there it was. Someone was looking for a person to come by and feed their pets. I assumed they were going out of town or something. So I contacted them and left my number through email. I got a response immediately in the form of a phone call. The caller was a man, who explained to me that he was moving out of town, and his parents had cats they wanted fed daily. I gave the man my name so he could run me through a cursory background check, and in about 20 minutes, I was hired. I went there the next morning to get all the instructions and whatnot, and met the man I'd spoken to on the phone. His name was Ben. Ben explained to me that he would no longer be able to care for his parents' cats, and that his parents needed to focus on themselves, so I was being brought on to take care of that. The money would be left on the kitchen table at the end of every week, $200 a week, just to feed some cats, I know right? In addition to that, money for more cat food would be left for me as needed. Then he told me the first thing that I thought was strange. I was to come at exactly 10 am every day, and be gone by 10 10 am. And I was to never, under any circumstances, to interact with his parents. He told me that when I'm in their home, they will be in their chairs in the living room, watching television, and that I was not to disturb them, ever. He asked if any of that would be a problem, to which I assured him it wouldn't. He then showed me the area in which the cats eat, there were four cats, 
and where the food was kept. While not rude in the least, he was very adamant that I not explore further in the house, which I promised him wouldn't be a problem. He ushered me outside and showed me where the spare key was in case the door was ever locked, but he told me that was very unlikely to happen. And with that, he expressed his hope that I could be trusted one last time, shook my hand, and told me to be there at 10am every day starting tomorrow. If I was ever unable to make it, call and leave a message on their home phone, to which he gave me the number. I shook my head and was on my way. The next day came, and I went inside at exactly 10am. I walked into the house, and immediately to my right were Ben's parents, sitting in recliners, facing away from me, watching some kind of game show. I announced my presence, which they ignored, and made my way to the kitchen. I fed the cats bowls and left. This exact same scenario played out countless times over the next few months. 10 a.m., unreturned hello, feed the cats, leave. On Fridays, I would pick up the small stack of $20 bills from the kitchen table. It was the easiest job I ever had. Then came the inevitable, one day, I was running late. I got to the house at 10.08. I entered and apologized to Ben's parents for being late, to which I once again got no response, they just kept sitting in their chairs watching their game show. I went to the kitchen and fed the cats. I looked at my phone, which read 10.11, and walked down the hall towards the front door. When I reached the living room, I jumped and gasped out of shock. Ben's parents were now standing in the dark behind their chairs, completely still, staring directly at me. I apologized for running late and got out of there. Though unnerved, I went back the next day on time, and everything was fine. A few more months went by of nothing strange, and then came the last day I was there. I got there at 10.03, but wasn't worried because I knew I could be out before 10.10. The problem came when I was in the kitchen and I heard someone whisper the words help me. It startled me, and I jumped, looking around for the source of the cry for help. I saw no one around, but I heard it again, and then a third time. I began looking around, before realizing I was running behind. I looked at my phone and it was 10.10. My heart sank to my stomach when I looked down the hallway and saw Ben's parents for the first time in the light. They were grossly emaciated and pale, looking completely malnourished. They were essentially walking skeletons. I apologized for taking so long and said I'd be on my way, but they just stood there, blocking the way to the front door. I said I would take the back door, which was located in the kitchen, but when I went to open it, I found that it required a key to open from the inside, seriously. It was at this point that true panic set in. I looked behind me, and the parents were now about a half a foot away from the entrance to the kitchen, and I had nowhere else to go except what I presumed was a door to a pantry. They had blank stares across their faces, and their eyes looked as if the life had left them a long time ago. In a last-ditch effort, I went to the door that I thought was the pantry, and was instead met with a staircase leading into a basement, with, of course, no light. As soon as I opened the door there was a horrid stench that washed over the otherwise clean air I was standing in. I carefully went down the stairs and looked for a window, but they were all nailed shut. I happened to look back up the stairs, and the parents were now standing next to each other at the top of the stairs. It was truly horrifying. I pulled out my phone and called 911, not knowing what else to do, and when I explained my situation, they said they would send a car out immediately, and to stay on the phone while they connected me to the unit on route. I ran into the dark basement using my phone as a light. It didn't provide too much illumination since I was in the middle of a call, but it was just enough. There were racks of junk that lined the basement, separating it into almost aisles. I went down down to check if any of the windows were possibly loose, 
like I'd be that lucky. Then I turned around and shined the light in front of me, and I was inches away from the parents' lifeless looking faces. I let out a scream and ran in the other direction, and tripped over something, sending my phone flying from my hand. Of course, it landed face down so I couldn't find it. I ran back up the stairs and into the kitchen, looking back and seeing the parents standing at the bottom of the stairs, with slight grins on their faces. I ran down the hall to the front door and flung it open, screaming when I saw the cop standing right in front of me. He asked me if I was the one that called as I pushed past him to get outside, and told him I was. I looked in the window and saw the parents sitting in their chairs, watching their game show. I explained that these crazy old people had trapped me in their house and were chasing me around. The cop went in to talk to the parents and look around while I sat in the cop car. He came back out about 5 minutes later and asked if I was sure someone was chasing me. I said yes, I was absolutely sure, that it was the two old people that lived there. He informed me that the people that live there, the people in the chairs, have been dead for quite some time. I asked what the smell in the basement was, and he said there was another body down there. Backup showed up. I gave them my statement and explained how I'd been coming there every day for months and months to feed the cats. I told them to call Ben, the homeowner's son. I gave them the number, and it was disconnected. I found out a few days later that the body in the basement was Ben. What I don't get, is who's been paying me. I just remembered this today. In the mid-90s my dad was really big on auctions so he could resell stuff, mostly estate or storage liquidations. I was a college student and lived away from home but would humor him by joining him from time to time. This was before Craigslist was popular or any online selling platform really, so auctions at the time were very popular. I joined him to inspect an estate sale that was apparently from a deceased man's home in San Francisco. The auction house was packed with stuff and a ton of furniture. Since my dad was a VIP customer he got to go to the pre-sale browses where he could inspect or make lists of what he was interested in before the auction. I was bored out of my mind and was mindlessly opening and closing drawers of the furniture. There was one large armoire that was full of the owner's personal items, cancelled checks, bills, etc. Then I opened the bottom drawer. It was full of old blood-stained lingerie. Not a little bit stained like completely covered in old brown blood and crumpled up and stuffed in there. Most of it was white or light colored so it was very obvious. I slammed the drawer shut, ran and got my father. He thought I was being dramatic and came to look at it. Upon seeing it he looked alarmed and found the auction house owner. Very quickly, five large, strong looking men appeared and very quietly and quickly removed the entire armoire off the floor and into the back somewhere. I never found out anything further about it but I thought about it for a long time. I wish I had remembered the names on those cancelled checks and bills, but at the time, I had much more on my mind and cell phones didn't have cameras like they do now. Anyhow, that's my creepy memory. I have a cashier's check sitting on my kitchen table right now from a Craigslist listing. I am trying to sell my dad's 12-foot boat with motor and trailer on Craigslist. I've had a few questions, but no real no real hits on the ad yet, up until last weekend. Someone contacted me through texting only, said they lived out of the area and really wanted the boat. They would send me a cashier's check and have someone else pick up the boat for them. I got the check on Saturday, it is for $2,450. We we asking $975 for the boat. He said to cash the check and give the difference to the person picking up the boat. Now I know that the check is not good, 
and that nothing good would ever come from meeting up with someone that is trying this scam. But I am not sure what to do next. Should I take the check to the police? Should I just shred it all up? Any advice? The memories of high school are often colored by nostalgia, a time when we were young, carefree, and full of hope for the future. For my friend, Jason, those days were particularly special, as he forged a bond with someone who would become one of his best friends, Emily. They had been inseparable during those years, sharing laughter, secrets, and dreams. But as life moved forward, they drifted apart, each embarking on their own unique journeys. Years passed, and it wasn't until they reached their late 20s that their paths converged once again. Emily had just moved into a charming house on the outskirts of the city, and she needed a new housemate to share the rent. She took to Craigslist to search for a suitable candidate, hoping to find someone who would not only contribute their share of the bills but also bring a positive atmosphere into the house. After sifting through countless responses and conducting interviews, Emily finally found her match, a woman named Sarah. Sarah's references checked out, and she seemed cool, friendly, and responsible. Emily was overjoyed to have found a new housemate, and the two quickly became friends. For a while, everything seemed to be falling into place. They would have late-night chats, watch movies, and explore the city together. It felt like the perfect arrangement. However, one evening, their peaceful coexistence took a horrifying turn. Emily's phone buzzed incessantly with messages from an unknown number. Alarmed, she picked it up, only to find disturbing texts from a man she didn't recognize. The messages grew increasingly threatening and deranged, hinting at a past relationship that had taken a dark and obsessive turn. Emily showed them to Sarah, who was equally horrified. Sarah, her heart pounding, realized the identity of the sender. It was her ex-boyfriend, Eric, whom she had broken up with years ago due to his increasingly erratic and abusive behavior. She had hoped he would leave her alone, but it was clear that he hadn't forgotten her. His obsession had resurfaced, and he was convinced they were still a couple. Emily, concerned for her friend's safety, suggested contacting the police, but Sarah was reluctant to take such a step. She believed she could handle the situation on her own, unaware of the danger that lurked. Unbeknownst to them, Eric was already planning his revenge, and the flames of his obsession burned brighter than ever. One fateful night, as the house lay shrouded in darkness, a shadowy figure crept inside. Emily had a bad feeling in her gut and decided to stay up, keeping watch over the house. She heard footsteps and the creaking of the floorboards. It was too late when she realized what was happening. As she rushed to Sarah's room, the door swung open, and Eric, with a crazed look in his eyes, lunged at her. In the ensuing struggle, Emily fought for her life, but Eric was relentless. He stabbed her multiple times, leaving her bleeding and gasping for breath. Jason, who had been awakened by the commotion, rushed to their aid and was met with the same ruthless violence. Desperation filled the room, as Sarah, their would-be protector, watched in shock, unable to intervene. After ensuring that Jason was incapacitated, Eric turned his attention to her, revealing the full extent of his madness. With chilling precision, he set the house on fire, sealing the fate of his victims. As the flames consumed the walls around them, Sarah managed to escape, fleeing for her life. She stumbled onto the street, screaming for help, just as the first responders arrived. The firefighters battled the flames, their hoses dousing the inferno, but it was too late for Jason. Severely burned and barely clinging to life, he was rushed to the nearest burn unit, where he endured months of excruciating pain and grueling surgeries. 
Miraculously, he survived, but his life had been forever altered. The scars on his body were a testament to the horrors he had endured, and the emotional scars ran even deeper. The trauma of that night haunted him every day, and he struggled to find solace and closure. Jason's health deteriorated over time, and he eventually succumbed to his injuries, leaving behind a profound sense of loss for those who had known and loved him. Emily, too, had faced a long and arduous recovery, forever marked by the scars both visible and invisible. As for Sarah, she had managed to escape the clutches of her deranged ex, but the ordeal had left her forever changed. She vowed to never let anyone else suffer at the hands of an abuser and dedicated herself to supporting survivors of domestic violence. The tragic events of that night served as a chilling reminder that darkness could infiltrate even the most ordinary of lives, leaving behind a trail of pain, loss, and shattered dreams. Emily, Jason, and Sarah's lives were forever altered, their futures rewritten by the cruel hand of fate and the malevolence of one disturbed individual. This is like a day late and not too crazy but here goes, I sold an acoustic bass on CL one time and I needed the money so when the guy asked if I could come to him I agreed. I'm a little wary of going to people's houses, so we met at a McDonald's. I'm there and text him what car I'm in and stuff. Behind the McDonald's are some woods, which six Amish people walk out of into my car. One of them, who introduced himself as Daniel, gave me the $200 and invited me back to their place for a family concert. I declined but they insisted on playing for me right there with an acoustic bass, mouth harp, harmonica, and one dude just hitting his knees. After that they said bye and walked back into the woods. I got some fries and went home. Selling my old 1988 Ford F-150 Custom had been a bittersweet experience. This old truck had been with me through thick and thin, and parting with it was akin to saying goodbye to an old friend. With its odometer clocking in at a whopping 315,000 miles, the old beast had seen better days, but it still chugged along like a trooper. The gas gauge had long ceased to function, and one of the gas tank fuel pumps had given up the ghost. But I loved that truck, and I hoped to find it a new home where it would continue to serve its purpose. I decided to list it on Craigslist, hoping to find someone who appreciated its rugged charm. The ad described its history, quirks, and its character. I didn't sugarcoat the issues, I wanted to be upfront about what a potential buyer was getting into. A few days after posting the ad, I received a response from a guy named Mark. He seemed genuinely interested, so we arranged a meeting at my place for him to inspect the truck. He arrived on a bright, sunny morning with a hint of eagerness in his eyes. We exchanged pleasantries, and he began to inspect the Ford. His eyes roamed over the exterior, checking for rust, dents, or any other signs of wear and tear. His gaze then settled on the gas gauge and the switch that controlled the two fuel tanks. I explained the situation, detailing the issues that I had come to accept as part of the truck's character. Mark listened attentively and, after a few moments of contemplation, offered $800 for the old F-150. We shook hands, and I handed over the keys. Mark hopped into the truck, started the engine, and with a cheerful wave, he drove off down the street. I watched the truck disappear from view with a mixture of sadness and relief. It was hard to part with it, but I hoped Mark would find as much joy in that old machine as I had. A week went by, and I had nearly put the old Ford out of my mind when I received a series of emails from Mark. At first, I was excited, thinking he might have questions or wanted to share his experiences with the truck. But as I opened the messages, I was met with a cascade of complaints. 
Gas gauge doesn't work, read one email. How do I switch between tanks? Questioned another. Then came the kicker, the fuel pump for one of the tanks doesn't work. I need you to pay for the repairs. I sat there, reading the emails with a mix of bewilderment and frustration. The truck's quirks were not secrets. I had been entirely transparent during the sale, explaining its issues to Mark. Yet here he was, seemingly upset and demanding compensation for problems that he was already aware of. For a moment, I considered responding to Mark's messages, explaining once again the condition of the truck and how the sale had been conducted honestly. But something in me urged against it. I realized that I had upheld my end of the bargain, and Mark's complaints were unjust. I chose not to respond to his messages, instead deciding to let the situation resolve itself. I hoped that Mark would come to terms with the truck's idiosyncrasies and find a way to enjoy the old Ford for what it was, a faithful, albeit imperfect, companion. Weeks turned into months, and I never heard from Mark again. I hoped that he had come to appreciate the uniqueness of the old 1988 Ford F-150 custom, quirks and all. As I watched the sunset one evening, I couldn't help but feel a sense of closure. The old truck was now part of someone else's story, and I had done my part in ensuring its legacy lived on, for better or for worse. The warm afternoon sun cast a golden glow over the quiet parking lot where the Craigslist transaction was about to take place. John had listed his paintball gun, a trusty Tipman A5, hoping to find a new home for it. He'd received an email from a potential buyer named War Pig 57, which was intriguing enough to pique his curiosity. As John arrived at the agreed-upon location, a sense of anticipation mingled with a hint of nervousness. He'd sold various items on Craigslist before, but this particular exchange seemed different. It wasn't just about the money, it was about knowing that the paintball gun he'd loved and used so much would find a new purpose. As he stepped out of his car, John noticed a man standing near a minivan, with a young boy by his side. The man, who appeared to be in his mid-thirties, had a friendly smile and an air of approachability about him. The boy, who couldn't have been more than 10 years old, clung to his father's side with wide eyes filled with anticipation. Hey there, John called out, making his way toward the duo. You must be war, pig 57? The man nodded with a grin. That's me. And this little guy right here is my son, Ethan. We're both excited to get into paintballing. Awesome. John replied, his anxiety dissipating as he saw the fatherson duo. It's great to meet you both. I'm John. I'll be right back, I don't have a bag or anything to carry the gun in. Hope that's okay? War Pig 57 nodded in agreement. Sure, take your time. We're not in a rush. John headed back to his car, feeling a mix of relief and excitement. He'd always loved paintball and was thrilled that Ethan would have a chance to share in that enthusiasm with his father. After a quick rummage through the trunk, he grabbed the Tipman A5 and made his way back to the minivan. As he approached, John extended his hand, sealing the deal with a handshake. Here you go, he said, handing over the paintball gun. Treat it well, and it'll serve you and your son for years to come. War Pig 57 took the gun and inspected it with a practiced eye. Looks great. We're going to have a blast with this. John noticed that War Pig 57 had reached for his wallet, which was when he noticed something that made his heart skip a beat. The wallet was open just enough for John to glimpse the badge inside, and his eyes fell on the word Sheriff's ID. For a few heart-pounding seconds, John's mind raced. Thoughts of undercover officers and entrapment danced through his head. He imagined headlines and courtroom dramas, 
all centered around a simple Craigslist transaction. Panic began to creep in. Warpig57 must have noticed the change in John's demeanor. He chuckled, withdrawing his wallet to show the badge more clearly. Oh, I see you noticed the badge. Yeah, I'm a sheriff in my day job. I'm not here to arrest you, don't worry. The tension that had gripped John began to dissipate, replaced by a nervous laughter. You scared me there for a second. Warpig57 smiled warmly. Sorry about that. I should have warned you. I figured this might be a good way for Ethan and me to bond, especially since I'm not working this weekend. Thanks for understanding. John let out a relieved breath. No problem at all. I hope you and Ethan have a fantastic time out on the paintball field. Be safe, and enjoy the adventure. With that, the paintball gun found a new purpose, not in the hands of a criminal but in the hands of a father and his son, who were looking to create lasting memories together. As they drove off, John couldn't help but smile, grateful that a simple Craigslist transaction had brought a touch of adventure, and a heartwarming connection, into his life.